Hello, you're listening to Second City Sermons, a ministry of Second City Church in Midtown Harrisburg. This fall, we're exploring the Old Testament book of Nehemiah and seeing what often happens when God's people seek to rebuild what is broken. It's a book of trial, triumphs, repair, repentance, and renewal. It's our hope that these sermons will draw you more into the life of following God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We'd love to meet you, and we hope you'll consider coming and joining with us each Sunday morning at 10 a.m. in the heart of Midtown Harrisburg. You can find us online at secondcitychurch.org and on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. We hope you enjoyed this sermon. God bless. Lord, uh, thank you for your word. Um, Lord, thank you for this passage from Nehemiah and from 1 John and the Gospel of Matthew and Psalms like Psalm 51. Lord, we pray that today you would give us ears to hear from you and hearts to receive you. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. All right, I bet uh, you've heard um, quotes or stories, probably all throughout your life, that have gone in one ear and promptly exited the other. Uh, You've probably heard some of these quotes. The journey of a thousand miles begins with one step. Lao Tzu. Um, Gandhi said, you must be the change you wish to see in the world. Churchill said, if you're going through hell, keep going. Uh, Ellie Weissel said, the opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference. My guess is that most of you have actually heard all of those quotes before. Um, and I read them faster than I maybe should. And I, might, I would guarantee that you could sit with each one of them and just give your attention to it and contemplate it for a long, long time and see that as you do so, it sort of becomes a world within itself. And it teaches you new things. But so often in life, what happens with these kinds of things is just like I read them, they just go in one ear and they almost exit promptly out the other. Um, Over and over again in the Gospels, Jesus says this phrase, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. I mean, listen, okay, that happens in Matthew, he says this in Matthew 11, 13, 13, 9, 13, 43, Mark 4, 9, 4, 23, Luke 8, 8, 14, and 14, 35. Here's the thing. Jesus does not have the assumption. He doesn't work off the assumption that just because you've heard something, you have any understanding of what it is that you've heard. It has had any bearing on your life. Jesus is actually talking to his very disciples who right after he says this, start to argue who's the greatest in the kingdom. This is what he tells them. This is Luke chapter 9, verse 44. He says, let these words sink into your ears. I wonder what the intonation with which he said that. Guys, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. And then the next phrase is, and they start to grumble about themselves. Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? <sighs> um, so in, anyway, in, in a way, what we have in these chapters, you know, chapter 7, which we kind of skimmed over, was all, the listing of all the people that have settled into the land around Jerusalem. You know, the, the wall has been, has been built in Nehemiah chapter 6, and then they've settled in. And then in chapter 8, you know, we have this family reunion that sort of, you know, everybody gathers together and they say, who are we again? We've gathered from all these different kinds of places and and what's going to orient us? Remember I asked you that question. What what are you giving your attention to? What's orienting you in your life? 
And, and they answered that by saying, hey, Ezra, bring out the Bible. Let's give our attention to it. And they did for a long, long stretch. Y'all thought that was a long reading, didn't you? Did you see that it's a quarter of a day that they listened to the word and then another quarter of a day that they taught it? All right, so like 12 hours, settle in. Um, and uh, so they say, bring out the Bible. And, um, and you know what happens is that they have this great feast in chapter 8. Um, maybe you'll remember that they had actually, they celebrated the Feast of Booze that would have actually ended on October 16th this year. And really, literally, this would have been happening probably in the last, you know, October of 445 B.C. But what they were doing, what I'm suggesting to you is devoting themselves to the scriptures. But as they did that, what they were doing is they were devoting themselves to their family stories. It was sort of like a family reunion. Let's come together and tell the family stories. Learn how it shapes us and learn how it brings us to where we are today. And um, just as I say that, my guess is that all of you have had times where you've sat down maybe with your parents or siblings or your own children, and you've started to tell family stories. I had an assignment as a junior in high school where I was supposed to interview somebody who had lived through the Great Depression. One of my grandmothers, both my grandmothers had, but I interviewed one of my grandmothers. And uh, she, her family, they were Germans who had been living in Russia, and they moved to Washington State in the early part of the 1900s. And um, they moved to Tacoma, Washington, and they, they were immigrants, and they were living with other immigrants, particularly during the two wars. They were Germans, and they, you know, spoke, well, they knew German, but they actually just spoke English. I remember her telling me that. But their neighbors were Japanese folk and Irish immigrants and people that other people really kind of didn't want to be around, particularly in that time. And I asked her how it was, and she said, I had no clue that the Depression was going on. Our floors were still made of dirt, and my father was still abusive, and I just wanted out. So that was a significant story to hear from my grandmother. And then one of my big family stories that shaped me a lot is when my parents got married right after college, my dad had been really into hot rods. He actually started like a big club. It's, called, it's still around. It's called the Midnight Riders. You can look it up. And he painted hot rods to get through college. And he sold a hot rod right after they got married. And they took the money and they moved to Europe. And they bought a VW bus in London. And they traveled around sleeping out of their VW bus in 1976 throughout Europe. It's, it's really kind of wonderful, but actually, as I've sat in those two stories, I've thought, oh my goodness, I, I just love getting out and being away, you know? Because as soon as you start to give your attention to some of the stories of your family and of your own life, you start to go, whoa, there's so much more happening. There's so much more going on. You have to, though, slow down to hear. You know, you almost have to give your attention to six hours of scripture reading and then another six hours of their explanation to actually start to go, oh, this is the family story that I'm a part of. This is who I am and this is who we are. You have to sit in it. And some of you actually are a lot like me, even though you know that you're called to devote yourself to listening, you're prone to distraction and you're reticent to sit in the sadness and just the oh of it all. So you run. And you gloss over. But that's actually not what these people who've been gathered together for this family reunion do with Nehemiah. They gather together. And again, even though they just, we know that they spent that whole last week in the word of God, what they do again is they say, hey, let's bring out the Bible again. Let's hear all these stories again. 
they had gathered together, and, and we heard a lot in chapter 8 how they understood because they had it taught to them. Um, and their first reaction in chapter 8 was to mourn and to weep. You might remember that. But they were told, don't do that. Don't do that. Instead, get out the fatty pieces of meat, get out the new wine, you know, the ribeyes and the Beaujolais, and like, let's all feast and give it to the people that don't have any. We're going to feast. Um, but now, chapter 9 is a time of confession. There is a time to confess and to sit in it and to weep over it and to mourn it and to bring it to one another and to bring it to God. How this chapter begins is the people of Israel were assembled. With fasting and with sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And as is almost always the case in the Bible, actually, this is a very, very important thing to learn. The outward uh, reflects, but it also sort of augments what's going on inside. The Bible teaches again and again that we're bodily beings. Um, just like the joy of chapter 8 was accompanied by feasting, the sorrow of chapter 9 is accompanied by sackcloth. And ashes, and because you're bodily, your bodily engagement in the world always interacts with and augments your spiritual life. Which, this is not in here, but this is why, actually, I always say, like, no, it's good for us to learn how to clap. It's good for us to learn how to raise our hands. And good for us to learn how to be prostrate, because these things matter in the Bible a lot. But what's happening here, right, is that they, they heard the, the, the Bible, and what the teacher said is, hey, there's a lot of reason to rejoice. A lot of what you're hearing is a whole lot of reasons to rejoice. Um, I mean, come together and celebrate that God has been faithful to his covenant, that he's brought you out from exile and you've, he's brought you to himself. And look, you've even rebuilt the wall. There's so many reasons to just celebrate and give thanks. Chapter 8. Chapter 9 goes, you know what? There's also a whole lot of reasons to weep and to mourn and to sit in sackcloth and ashes and earth over your head and to fast, and to confess. And so verse 3, it says this, And they stood up in the place and read from the book of the law of the Lord. This is great. They stood up. <laughs> Their God for a quarter of the day. Um, that was a long reading, right? I'm just going to say that again. They, they're doing it for six hours. It's standing up. And for another quarter of the day uh, uh, of it, they made confession and worshiped their God. So what I want us to do is sort of look at this confession. And I just want you to look at it through two big lenses, okay? One is that they confess the story of God. And then the second thing is that they confess their own story, okay? So these two stories are kind of doing this in this confession prayer. But the first thing that they do, and I think this is one of the first things that might strike you if you were to sit in it. And to allow sort of the noise, you know, that like shocks us. Because probably what happened actually with that loud noise is that it was actually harder for you to listen. But if you're able to sit with this prayer and you're able to listen to it, I think the thing that might jump at you, out at you first is most of the prayer is about what God's done. And his story and his work in the world. This prayer that is explicitly a prayer of confession primarily is oriented towards God, God and what he has done. Um. All of these people, they gather together, now not in the joy of feasting, but in the mournful reality of sin and its effects in their life. Um, and they've come out, think, think even recently, they've come out of some of the li living very 
horrible realities of their deep sin. Um, the exile, I mean, they're coming from, initially the book begins in, you know, Susa, the citadel, way, way off. And there's people from the Assyrian exile that are coming and the Babylonian exile. And they know intimately the effects of sin. And even if you remember just back in chapter 5, you know, they're, they're taking interest from one another to the extent that they're actually putting one another in slavery. I mean, there's just like horrible, horrible effects of sin that are taking place. And you might think that the inclination, because that's what's going on situationally, would be to automatically say, God, here's all my sin. Look at this that I've done. And look at this that we did. And look at what, what brought us into the Assyrian exile and the Babylonian exile. Why Nehemiah is a cupbearer. But it doesn't begin that way at all. Isn't that, isn't that just really interesting that it doesn't begin that way? This is how the prayer begins. You are the Lord. You alone. You've made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth, and all that is on it. The sea and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them. And the host of heaven worships you. It begins this whole prayer saying, God, who are you? You're the creator, God. You're the sustaining one. You're the king, not just of little Jew Jewish Israel centered around Jerusalem at the time. You're the king over all things and everything is held together by the word of your power. Colossians chapter 1 says this with regards to Christ. It says, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He's before all things and in him all things hold together. This prayer of confession is basically saying, this is the God that we worship. This is his story. He's the creator God. But it quickly actually moves from that because he's not just the creator God, though he is that. He's also the covenant-making God. So it kind of moves. Verse 7, it says this. You're the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham, father of many. He found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, and the Girgashites. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. So it's, it's telling first and foremost, this prayer of confession is first telling the story of God. He's the creator God. He's the covenant-making God. He's the covenant-keeping God. If we keep going, it says this, And you saw the affliction of your fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea, and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers. And you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. It just highlights that this God who created all things is so committed to his creation that he's going to make a covenant to renew it. And he is going to keep the covenant. He's going to keep his promises. He's going to do whatever it takes to keep that covenant. Now, I, I could just walk us through this whole prayer, but that would literally mean we're going to be here for hours. So let me summarize it for you. Because here's what happens in this prayer. The story just continues. He talks about how God cares for them as the pillar of fire by night and the cloud by day. How he takes them to Mount Sinai and gives them the good law, right, through the hand of Moses. He talks about how he, that he provided for them bread from heaven and water from the rock. How he brought them through Joshua, Joshua's leadership and gave them the land that he had promised them. Um, and it says he gave them good gifts. That's one of the phrases, which I love. He gave them good gifts. Um, and, they, and they confess. Um, they, they confess the story of God as he gave them the prophets. This is verse 30. I love how this is said too. It says, many years you bore with them 
and warned them by your spirit through the prophets. The spirit was at work long before Pentecost. Um, but here's what I'm suggesting to you, is that in this prayer of confession, the first and largest emphasis is who is God? Who's God? And what has he done? And what's God's story with us? Um, they're confessing, you could say, this, this, the, the hesed of God. The steadfast love of the Lord that endures forever. And actually, they do it in the same way that they've been taught to do it through their songs. Some of you know Psalm 136. Psalm 136 is the, the psalm that um, everyone who only wants to sing hymns with stanzas needs to learn. Because every other line, it goes, the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. The steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. The steadfast love. Let me read some of it for you. Um, verse 5. It, actually, the first section of Psalm 136 begins with creation. So verse, I'm going to jump into verse 5. It says, To him who by understanding made the heavens, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who spread out the earth above the waters, for his steadfast love endures forever. Now let me, let me actually jump down, because he begins to actually speak of how he's worked with them. Um, and gave their land as a heritage, after telling how he brought them out from slavery, and he brings them to the land, for his steadfast love endures forever. A heritage to Israel, his servant. For his steadfast love endures forever. And it just keeps going because what's being highlighted in this prayer of confession is the same thing that they've been taught again and again. The story of God is the story of a God whose steadfast love endures forever. He's the creating God. He's the covenant-making God. And he is the covenant-keeping God. And this is what we have highlighted in a prayer of confession. Um. One of the things that we do week in and week out, you know, we have this liturgy that we follow, and it's basically the same every week, is we gather together and we confess that God is the one who gathers us together. Uh, that God is the one who forgives us our sins. That God's the one who teaches us from his word. That God's the one that feeds us at his table. That God's the one that blesses us. The, the primary actor in our worship is God. And our orientation is towards who he is and what he has done. And actually, I, I could highlight this in many other places, but this pattern is found throughout Scripture, particularly in worship. You can look at Psalm 104, 105, and 106. If you put those psalms together, you're going to see 104 is all about creation. And there's some great verses in there. 105 is all about covenant making and covenant keeping. Psalm 105 then moves actually to confessing. Or Psalm 106 moves to confessing sin. What I'm suggesting to you is that we have to have the story of God always before us. You have to have the story of God always before you all the time. It's through the story of God that we properly see our own story. Um, what we do when we have God before us is we see actually his power and his beauty and his glory. And the fact that our, our state is not the end of the story because we worship a God who's power is actually made perfect in our weakness. We find that his timeline is so different than our own, right? That his ways are so much different. That he takes us to places not when we maybe want to go there, but we know we actually should go there. He's at work. He's at work through his steadfast love. He keeps covenant and he does redeem his people. Um, many of you know this in your own life. I mean, marriages that have been healed. And actually not normally when you're like wanting them to and in the ways, but through God's perfect timing and his perfect power, they're healed. As we fix our eyes on him, um, some of you know, as what happened in uh, this book itself, right back in chapter five and chap chapter six, that 
greed really has been changed to generosity in your life. Not because of you, but because of how God has worked. Many of you know that your addictions, pornography and substance addictions, have actually been changed. It's not because of your power, but because of God and having your eyes fixed on him and his story in your life. Um, here's what I'm saying, is that this psalm that is it's said, or sorry, this, this prayer is all about confession. It's primarily about confessing who God is. And it's only because of that that there's actually any power in it. So we must learn again and again that even as we come to our own confession, our own sin and the effects of it in the world, that we have to first know God's story and his power. <clears throat> but we got to also move to our story. And that's one of the invitations of Scripture time and time and time again. So anyway, I mentioned, um, I mentioned that this chapter begins with people gathering together. And what they do is they put on sackcloth and just says earth, you know, sackcloth and ashes sometimes in Scripture. And, and these are to image for us that we're from dust. We'll return to dust. There's a powerlessness in who we are. There's a shame in our sin. There's a guilt in our sin. There's transgressions and misdeeds that we have done. And we can't just gloss over their effects in the world. They're real. So verse 16 and 17, I'm going to read a number of verses, but look at this with me. Verse 16, it says, But they and our fathers, they acted presumptuously and stiffened their necks and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their necks and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. What do we learn? But they blaspheme. Um, they, these people, they admit that they've been running away from God. They've been stiffening their necks, it mentions twice, against God. They're admitting their disobedience, their stiff next disobedience, their, their defiance. Um, verse 26, it says this in a different kind of way. Verse 26, nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back. And killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they, they committed great blasphemy. They killed the very prophets that God sent to warn them. They blaspheme again. They, they spurn correction. They're saying this is part of our family story. And I don't know if you noticed this, but they also seem like they're all wishy-washy in it, which just seems very relatable. Like they're sometimes like, God, yeah, we want you close. Wait, wait, we want you far away. We want you close. Don't get that close. Verse 28, it says this. But after they had rested, they did evil again before you, and you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies, and you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. It's just like. Whoo, whoo, whoo. But here's what they're doing, right? They're owning this. They're owning this as their family reality. I mean, this is what is happening. This is a big family reunion and they're telling the story of God and they're saying, look at what we have done. They're owning, actually, the consequences of it, too. Um, they talk about becoming slaves. They were exiles. Exiles. They lost their kingdom. 
right? They lost Jerusalem entirely. Uh, the temple where God himself met with his people was destroyed because of their sin. They lost their gold and their silver and their precious idol, uh, uh, items. They lost the Ark of the Covenant as far as we're aware. They lost all this stuff. It was because of their sin. And they're saying, this is the effect of our sin in the world. It has real life consequences. Our story and the mess of our running away from God affects the real world that we live in. And we confess it. Now, I think this is really, really important to hear. Um, this is a family gathering, right? These people are gathering together, and there's no attempt in this prayer to the Lord to say, yeah, that was way back when. I mean, the Assyrians, we're talking almost 300 years ago. We've moved on, God. Their sins aren't ours. We don't have to own them. Now, I want you to think, of course, we are Americans. And what is like the number one American like trait? Individualism. And so when we come across something like this, we're like, wait, no, that was like, that was two generations ago, God. I don't have to deal with the sins of my grandparents. Bible has no category for that, by the way. Uh, let me just say that. There's no, not even remotely a category for that. Um, so let me jump down to verse um, 32. I'm going to read a little bit of this. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God. Again, they're keeping God in mind. Who keeps covenant and steadfast love. Let not, all the hardsh let not all the hardships seem little to you that have come upon us. Upon us. Upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people. Since the time of the kings of Assyria. Remember, that's 721. 300 years earlier, almost. To this day. Yet you've been righteous in all that has come upon. If anyone's looking at this, it says us. It doesn't say them. It's this just jo joining together, owning the reality of corporate sin and its effect in the world. For you've dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them. It keeps going. Here's the thing. They gather together. They speak with one voice and they own their family story. They own the family sins as theirs, not just something of the past, but something that affects the present. They count themselves with their fathers and their mothers and their priests and their prophets and all of the rest. Their grandmother's stories is their story. So who commits these sins of faithlessness? It's not just them. It's us with them. They're joined together. They own it. Here, this Nehemiah community owns it. They confess the wrongs that were done, the good things that were left undone. They own this story as their own. Okay? So, um, some of you remember this summer in July, Pope Francis went to Canada. And do you remember what he did there? One of the things he did was he confessed the Catholic Church's um, active involvement and putting many of the indigenous people into to schools. And if you read about it, actually, many of those children had their names literally taken away. And they had a number that had to do with where they came from and what, like, number. They were just given numbers. They were completely uh, devoid of sort of person personhood. And Pope Francis confessed that. He begged for forgiveness. But if you read about some of the, some of the responses, I was shocked by it that there were two responses. 
One was saying, give me Pope Francis, this is this was so long ago, this isn't like, like the present sin of the church. This is this is something in the past. And then one was saying, you haven't done nearly enough. Right? It's only just looking at like what are you doing? Um some of you have heard me say in the past that one of the, one of the real scars on Presbyterian history is the Presbyterian theologians of the South, namely uh, Thornwell and Dabney, were the great theologians that defended slavery during the mid-19th century. I mean, they were the leading voices of the Southern Presbyterianism, and they very explicitly defended slavery. Um, and that is, a, that is part of our family history. Um, but may, maybe, have any of you heard of the Christian rapper Propaganda? It's fine if you haven't, okay? But he's, he's, a, he's of the sort of Reformed Christian bent. And uh, he wrote a song called Precious Puritans, where he, he, he basically sings in this how hard it is as a black Christian within the Reformed world to, to actually own sort of part of this history. And he laments this reality um, that many of the Puritans themselves, who are elevated to this sort of godlike stature in some circles, um, owned slaves. And the reaction to his own song, some people were like, give me a break. That was years ago. Let it go. And he says, what? I mean, Jonathan Edwards, one of the greatest preachers America's ever known. One of the greatest intellectuals, everybody agrees, probably ever lived in the United States. He had a household slave. Like, what? the worst thing you can do is just gloss over it and pretend it never existed. That's the worst thing that you can do. And so he's actually starting to name it and try to engage with it, and people were all mad at him. One thing that's happening in this is it's telling you, own your family story. Dive into it and see how it's actually, your own sins are sort of being, you know, the, the, the story that you've inherited is actually being lived out in your own life for good and for ill. But here's where I want to get back to, and I'm just going to end with this, okay? If all you do, if all you do is dive into your own story and see all that it has come about through your ancestors and how you're living out of it, all you're going to do, you're going to do a couple things, right? You're, you're going to kind of actually have those reactions. If, if all you're doing is seeing it in the human, human realm, you're going to go either like, man, I'm a lot better <laughs> than these other people. I'm better than my ancestors. Right? Or you're going to go, I'm, I'm worthless. I'm not good for anything. And I, I guarantee you that basically you're going to, try, you're going to totter between those two ditches. If what you primarily do is you just know your own story and you know the effects of your own family history without the reality of God. So what I want to tell you is that dive into it. You know, have the family reunions, explore it. But you must do it in the context of who God is. Because outside of that, then you're not going to have this grand idea that God is over all things. He speaks and new things come into being. Right? He creates covenants and he keeps them in his steadfast love is forever and it's never ending. And his mercy is new every morning. I mean, it's just listed again and again and again for, this, for us in this passage. It's deep knowledge of sin. It's a deep knowledge of the effects of it. It's owning it as yours and not just theirs. But all throughout it's saying, look at how amazing and how good God is. And if you can have the story of God before you as you do that, you can enter into all this other stuff. You can. I mean, I think really like the, there, we're all deeply afraid to enter into all that, whether it's our own personal stories or our, our family stories as Christians. 
who've done atrocities in the name of Christ, or Americans, or whatever it is, we're all deeply fearful. But with God, his mercy is new every morning. His covenant love never ends. His steadfast love endures forever. His steadfast love endures forever. His steadfast love endures forever. And lest you think I'm a Pentecostal, I'm going to stop saying that phrase, and you can just read it later in Psalm 136. Let me pray. Lord, God, I pray that we would um, slow down before your word. Um, Give us an attentiveness and an eagerness to know it, to love it. Think of how the law is spoken of, even here, that that if we follow it, it will give us life. I pray that we'd delight in it, delight in knowing your working in the world, and even delight in knowing our family stories as ugly as they are, Lord. Because in entering into them, we see your grace all the more gloriously. And I pray that we would have ears to hear. Please, God. Make us to be a confessing people who confess our own stories but more than anything, know how they fit into your grand, glorious one. Lord, we love you. And we're so grateful that you first loved us. And that your love for us never ends. It's new every morning. Your steadfast love endures forever. Thank you for listening to Second City Sermons podcast. We hope this sermon has encouraged you to worship God and to celebrate the gospel of Jesus. Please consider subscribing to this podcast and joining us in person each Sunday at 10 a.m. You can find us online at secondcitychurch.org and on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Thanks again for listening. God bless.